The scripture reading for today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all, all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over, the, over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of the Lord. Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for this day that you have made. And we ask now once more in the hearing of your word, uh, you would speak your particular word to us. And in that hearing, help us to be encouraged and find the courage to obey. We ask these things in Christ's name, our risen Lord. Amen. Welcome. So we are continuing through the narrative lectionary, and last week you might remember that we heard the story of Hannah and the birth of her son Samuel. Uh, Samuel is the last of the prophet judges of Israel, and he will play now kingmaker as the confederacy of tribes transitions into a monarchy. And he will anoint Saul as the first king and later King David to replace him. As our reading opens... David has already killed Goliath. He has outmaneuvered Saul and his followers. He has defeated the Philistines. And he has brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to centralize worship and to consolidate his power. Life for David at this point is pretty good. 
There's peace, there's prosperity. And he's sitting in his comfortable house thinking to himself, maybe I should build a house for God. So, like a good man of faith, he consults his pastor. He says, maybe I should build a temple for God. And Pastor Nathan says, yeah, great idea, go ahead. Eugene Peterson says that Nathan had probably spent his life the way that most pastors do, that is always being asked to pray for on behalf of the needs of the people. Pray for my marriage, for my wayward child, that I can turn my business around for those lab results that are due Monday. Now finally, Nathan encounters someone who wants to give back, who wants to do something for God. It's awesome to hear that. It's a no-brainer. Go ahead, God is with you. I don't think any of us can really blame Nathan for saying those words. Uh, I can tell you that if any of you said something like, hey, Pastor Dave, life is pretty good right now, and uh, I got this land that's perfectly equidistant from every member of our church, and I want to donate that so we can build a church, daycare, school, and a home for the, uh, the elderly, as you know, some of us are getting up there in age. Uh, yeah, I'd say exactly what Nathan said, you know. Go, do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you, right? Uh, but that very night, God tells Nathan, no, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. I don't want to do that. Tell David, he's not going to build me a temple. He's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. And uh, to his credit, he goes back to David and basically says, hey, I was wrong. I was wrong. God has other plans. In 2 Chronicles 6, David sends Solomon will further clarify, but the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who will build the house, but your son. God commends David for wanting to build a house for God, but God had other plans. I hope that's an encouragement to you. That when God says no to some dreams that you may have, good dreams for yourself, for your children, for our church, for God. And God says no, it doesn't necessarily mean that your desires were wrong or that it was a bad idea. Only that maybe God has other plans. And we have to trust that. George Mueller said, the stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord just as his steps are. The stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord just as his steps are. What we don't do for God in obedience can prove to be just as important as what we do for God in obedience. And so the word that, come now, that comes now to David that's relayed through Nathan is, as all scholars agree, the theological center of the books of Samuel. One famous commentator went so far as to say, I judge this oracle with its unconditional promise to David, to be the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. Strong words. Why is that? Well, up to this point in the biblical narrative, God has been largely dealing with his people through a series of if-then promises. For example, in Exodus 19, God says, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then... You shall be my treasured possessions out of all the peoples. Leviticus 26, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then 
I will give you the rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield its fruit. If then. I know that we all understand this. This is how most of us live most of the time. This is what our parents, our teachers, our bosses, our religions have told us to do. If you eat your vegetables, then you can have dessert. If you study hard, then you won't fail or you're less likely to fail. If you work hard and are diligent, then you will get a promotion and a raise and so on. There are always consequences to our actions and we ought to act accordingly. That's kind of a life strategy for most of us. But now here, God seems to be making a critical shift. He seems to be saying that the way I'm going to now relate with my people is different. That all of my promises now are going to be no longer contingent upon human obedience but rest solely and entirely upon my own promises, upon my character. Regardless of what David and his descendants will do or fail to do, God promises, I will build David a permanent home, a forever house. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that God is going to ignore uh, all sins and forego justice or anything like that. The promise is very specific that when someone commits iniquity, God will continue to discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But the promise here is that David's house, his dynasty, will not be destroyed and that God will not remove him from the throne. God will not take away his promises because of those sins. Judgment is still a consequence of disobedience, but God's position of steadfast love toward his family will be everlasting. That's the promise. In other words, David's hope and our hope rests entirely on God's character and upon God's sovereignty. God makes it very, very clear that God is the one who is in charge. In the 12 verses of God's speech, I count 20 times that God uses the personal pronoun I and another 23 verbs, all actions, all by God. It is not what David wants to do that will ultimately prove decisive, but what God has done, what God is doing, and God plans to do. I took you from the pasture, he tells David. I have been with you wherever you went. I will make for you a great name. I will give you rest from all your enemies, and I will raise up your offspring. David's past and his future are secure in the hands of the almighty and gracious God. God builds the house because this is not about building David's kingdom or the kingdom of the Israelites. It's about God's kingdom. It's all about God's kingdom. And there must be no confusion as to who's doing the building or how it's going to be built. God's kingdom of salvation, of justice, of mercy, and of grace will be realized. And David's kingdom merely gives a visible uh, evidence of God's kingdom, of what God is doing. He's a witness, a representation of God's sovereignty, much as the church is today. Well, let me just make one reflection with you uh, this morning. I think it's quite remarkable that we have this passage uh, in our Bibles. And I know with all of the other exploits of David, right, like... Um, 
his uh, fight with uh, Goliath or the uh, adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah and so on. It, it, this is not like, you know, it doesn't kind of pop out uh, as something as memorable. And it's not entirely clear, uh, but the general consensus uh, among scholars is that the text that we have today was compiled sometime during what's known as the post-exilic period. That is, it was written down at a time after David's kingdom, after David's dynasty had completely collapsed. It was written after the people were defeated, after they were defeated by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, and then after seven years of captivity in Babylon, and they're just kind of a, a ragtag group of people had kind of returned to the land, when there is no hope, there is absolutely no evidence, no hint that a son of David would ascend the throne again. It was written down at a period when you would think this is the last thing that they would have to believe. They had no king, no kingdom, no reason to believe that this promise would be kept. And yet, contrary to everything they saw around them, everything that they had experienced that told them otherwise, they continued to remember and to believe that God's promises would somehow be fulfilled. We call that faith, right? This week, I heard some of our students went to Gettysburg, and I was reminded of something that made a super, super strong impression on me decades and decades ago. And so, of course, I went down the rabbit hole uh, and looked up all kinds of things about Gettysburg. And just to remind you, uh, Gettysburg was the site of one of the most bloodiest uh, of all battles in American history. Uh, and it later proved to be a uh, pivotal turning point in the uh, outcome of the American Civil War. Months after the Battle of Gettysburg, in the summer of 1863, on November 19th, a ceremony was quickly assembled to dedicate the grounds of the cemetery for the fallen soldiers. Some 15,000 people attended that service, including governors, military brass, and other dignitaries. The service began with music by a Marine band, then a prayer by the Reverend Stockton, which lasted 12 minutes. Then came the keynote speaker, a man by the name of Edward Everett. He was a former president of Harvard University, a former senator, a former secretary of state. He was considered one of the best, if not the best, orders in the nation. He got up and he gave the Gettysburg speech to the crowd, which lasted over two hours. A special hymn followed afterwards, and then President Abraham Lincoln stood up to give his remarks. It was only 272 words long and lasted three minutes, less than three minutes, interrupted five times by applause each time he mentioned the veterans who were being laid to rest. It was so brief that the official photographer never got a shot off. He was still adjusting his camera, right? They didn't have iPhones back then. And by the time he was ready to take a shot, Lincoln had already sat down. A dirge was sung, and then a final benediction was given by the Reverend Henry Bauger, which lasted 10 minutes long. And that closed the service. Regarding the event, 
the next day the New York Times ran this headline, immense number of visitors, oration by the Honorable Edward Everett and various speech by the governors. It didn't even mention that Lincoln had spoken. The Times were not alone in their dismissiveness of Lincoln. The Chicago Times wrote, we did not conceive it possible that even Mr. Lincoln would produce a paper so slipshod, so loose-jointed, so puerile, not alone in literary construction, but in its ideas, its sentiments, its grasp, he has outdone himself. A local paper, the Harrisburg Patriot and Union wrote, we will skip over the silly remarks of the president. And my favorite, the Trenton Daily True American Journal commented, he don't even know good English. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And we are now engaged in a great civil war. Right? These words, everyone knows them now. Lincoln's remarks known as the Gettysburg Address is indisputably now one of the greatest speeches ever made in the English language. Its power lies in Lincoln's ability to tie their current struggle to the founding of the nation and the signing of the Declaration of Independence, reiterating the principles upon which the nation was founded in liberty and the proposition that all men are created equal he was able to challenge and remind the nation of who they were, where they came from, and the ideas upon which the nation was built upon were worth fighting for and even dying for. He revoiced and expanded the American dream that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, he said, a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Lincoln saw that the old promises of liberty and equality must include now the lives of those enslaved and give birth to this new birth of freedom. Most people did not realize it at the time, but Lincoln essentially rebooted the course of American history, as historians have said. He, he rebaptized the American imagination, the American consciousness of what it meant to be an American people. I think God is doing something very similar here. God's promise to David and the kingdom is not something new. God is not contradicting his earlier words. It may seem that way because the promises that God makes to David here haven't been quite so directly and explicitly stated before. But it's what God has been doing from the very beginning. Over the last several months, we have seen this. We have seen these promises of grace. With Adam... The provision of an ally in Eve by grace. With Abraham and Sarah, a promised child, impossible by grace. A word of blessing after a night of wrestling for Jacob by grace. With Moses, the revelation of God's name and the ensuing rescue from the house of slavery by grace. All of these actions, these initiatives were taken by God. Not because the people deserved it, 
Not because they had somehow earned it. They absolutely did not. But God provided. God blessed. God rescued. God kept faith because that's who God is. And in the promise to David, God reboots, as it were, the promises that he has been keeping all along. When the Israelites wrote down these promises, they had no visible signs that God would keep that promise. But they had a history. They had a history, and they remembered what God had done before. And so they could trust that even though this seems impossible, they could continue to believe that somehow God would fulfill his promises. If God kept his promise to Abraham and to Sarah, if God kept his promise to Jacob and to Moses and to Hannah, God will keep his promises to David and to us as well. They trusted that God's promise to David, linking the former promises of the Exodus to the future promise of kings upon the throne, would somehow be fulfilled, even though at that moment they could not imagine it. I had a chance to uh, begin reading a novel this week, Beachcombing for a Shipwrecked God by Joe Coomer. And in it, he has this line. It seems to me that faith and memory are one and the same thing, or at least they can't exist without one another. Isn't this true? Isn't this one of the reasons why we worship and gather together? We do this in remembrance of him. Our faith is bolstered by our shared remembering together. In times of distressful doubt, seeming hopelessness, and encroaching darkness, we remember together what we may have forgotten, but we can remember together what we once saw clearly before. The ancient Israelites could not see how God would fulfill these words. But we now know, we remember, and so we can believe. The very first words of the New Testament begins with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? It's a terrible way to begin the greatest story ever told with a list of names, a genealogy, and yet this identification that Jesus Christ is the son of David tells us that this is now the fulfillment of the promises that were made hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is why throughout the gospel we hear again and again that Jesus is the son of David, that those who are seeking healing cried out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Those who saw his miracles wondered, could this be the son of David? And those who witnessed his entrance into Jerusalem in triumph shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Jesus Christ, God fulfills his promises to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And look at what Jesus does. He builds this eternal house that God had promised. Jesus told his enemies, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up once more. God's promise to David to build him a house is fulfilled in me, Jesus says. And he is raised. 
His resurrection assures us that the house is everlasting. So when Jesus promises us in John 14, in my Father's house, in this eternal house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. We can have confidence that this promise too will be kept. He prepares a place for us in the house that he himself has built, an eternal house, so that, as the psalmist says, we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The promises of God, the unconditional covenant of grace, is rooted in the character and sovereignty of God and realized fully in Jesus Christ. This is the grounds for our hope. This is the grounds for our hope. When the way seems dark, when all around looks hopeless, we can continue to cling to this promise because God has proven himself throughout history. We can remember together and we can keep faith. God's covenant with us is constant, it's everlasting. Sin will not defeat it. Death will not end it. Time will not consume it. Nothing Nothing will frustrate God's plans for us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Remember and believe the good news and be at peace. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your promises. Help us to remember, to remind each other and in remembering to believe. We know that you have always kept your promises. And so we ask God once more that those promises will be kept in our lives. We thank you and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.